And so worry thoughts are probably the number one way we bring ourselves back down. So be aware when you're feeling good, be aware of those worry thoughts creeping in because here's my guarantee to you, they almost never have anything to do with reality. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rach Active Podcast. We're bringing you insightful conversations to help you live an active and inspired life. So make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. I'm your host, Rachel J, and I'm so excited to welcome my guest to the show today. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He's also a psychologist and a leader in the personal development space. He's the author of books such as The Big Leap, The Genius Zone, Conscious living and so many more. Welcome to the show, Gay Hendricks. Thank you very much, Rachel. Great to be with you. I'm so excited to have you on the show and I think it's an absolute honor for me to be able to chat with you and have this wonderful conversation. Um, I think it's actually very serendipitous that uh, I have come to your work because I'm working with a really amazing female entrepreneur um, who is my mentor and coach and she actually recommended that I read your book, The Big Leap. And it's just so amazing. The the principles in this book, I feel like they're, they're really life-changing concepts. And so I am really excited to talk to you more about them. Uh, but before we get stuck into all of those concepts, I'm, I'm really excited to hear what firstly got you interested in human behavior and getting into psychology to begin with? Whoa, great question. Well, this goes back about 50 years. So take a time travel with me <laughs> uh, back to 1968, long before you arrived on wow, this planet. Uh, but I was a teacher at a little school for de de delinquent boys, juvenile delinquent boys that had 100 kids in this school. And I was slowly going nuts in the job because it required more psychology and counseling skills than it did teaching skills. And I hadn't learned any of that in college. I was an English major. But um, this job was so stressful and hard because not only was I a teacher there, but I uh, lived in an apartment on, what, on the end of one of the dormitories. So I had 24 juvenile delinquents that I was responsible for. But a good friend of mine, Neil Marinello, was taking a counseling class down at the University of New Hampshire, which was 20 minutes away. And I went down with him for one of his classes. And it was the most fascinating thing I'd ever seen because what I saw was like groups of eight students and they were doing group counseling. But the things they were talking about in the groups were, you know, what was going on in their lives and they were getting advice from the other members. And it was this unusual situation that I'd never seen anything like that, where, you know, one person might be talking about a relationship problem with her husband and another one was talking about losing 100 pounds. And, you know, it's just everybody had different issues, but they were working together on solving their problems. And I was so fascinated by that. I immediately signed up and ended up getting my master's there. And then one of the professors there had been a uh, graduate of Stanford, 
on the other end of the country. And so I ended up going out there to get my PhD in counseling. And then, uh, so that was my real introduction to it. At the time, I had a lot of problems myself. I was overweight and I smoked heavily cigarettes and I uh, was in a terribly difficult relationship. And within a two year period, by the time I got to the end of my master's, I completely changed my life. I lost weight, I'd quit smoking, I'd cleaned up my relationship stuff, and, and then I got into graduate school to go to Stanford. So it really changed my life. Wow, that's amazing. I, I do find a lot of people who are working in this space, they go through some sort of personal transformation themselves, and that's, and that's incredible to hear how many changes you made in your life at, at that point in time. So coming to the book, because I think, I mean, this is so relevant to all of us, these concepts that you discuss in this book. And one of the things that I found really life-changing was just firstly hearing this sentiment around discovering that you had a limited tolerance for feeling good. And I feel like that just has, it's something that I have never heard framed in that way before. And just to quote one of your little passages in the book, uh, you say, when I hit my upper limit, I manufacture thoughts that make me feel bad. The problem is bigger than just my internal feelings though. I seem to have a limited tolerance for my life going well in general. So I'm, I'm curious to know, can you speak a little bit more to this, this idea of having a limited tolerance for feeling good? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, when you think about it, human beings have been feeling bad for millions of years because we've struggled with adversity. You know, it was only 10,000 years ago that we started getting together in c- cities. Before that, it was caves and wherever you could grab a safe place to sleep. And so we've only had really the opportunity to cultivate feeling good in ourselves for a very short period of time. So we're not skilled at it yet. So don't beat yourself up if you're not very good at it because we haven't had much experience with it in human evolution. For millions of years, we've been learning how to deal with adversity and we're Mm -hmm. very good at dealing with adversity. But what we're not good at dealing with are things going well. And if you just look at history, How many years do human beings spend cultivating peace rather than fighting wars? We seem to fight a war every 25 or 30 years going back as far as you can look. So we have a tolerance, a limited tolerance as a species for how long we can get along in general in the world. But you really have to start looking at it in yourself and asking yourself, okay, can I spend three days or three hours or how long can I spend actually feeling good before I do something to mess it up, like eat something that's not good for me or uh, get into an argument with somebody or stub your toe or what we, there's lots of what I call the upper limit problem, which is the tendency to sabotage ourselves when things start going well. And that was one of the great discoveries of my life. First of all, I discovered it on myself because I was trying to lose weight at the time and I'd do great on my diet for about three days and then I'd mess it up. Mm -hmm. And then it would take me two or three days to kind of recover from that. You look like a very healthy person. You've probably never gained a pound in your life. But believe me, there's a whole bunch of people out here that sort of do battle with their waistlines every day. And I was one of them for a long period of my life. Mm. So did you hit a upper limit? Did you discover your upper limit 
going through that weight loss journey? Is that how you sort of came to realize that yes. that was happening with you? What were the sort of things that you would do to sabotage it? Uh, you know, kind of aside from eating out or whatever it is, how did you realize it? How did you realize this is what you're doing? I'll tell you exactly when the first upper limit problem really hit me. Mm. I had, I was, I was, I wasn't dieting. What I was doing, I changed my whole paradigm of eating. And I was eating only foods that I felt fed my new being rather than my old obese body. And so I used to live on a lot of cheeseburgers, fries, uh, I don't know what you guys eat down in Australia for junk food. <laughs> we eat cheeseburgers and fries too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mean you don't live just on Vegemite? <laughs> no, we don't. Oh, we, do, we do eat it sometimes, but yeah, no, we don't just eat that solely. <laughs> uh, well, what happened was I started eating this new way and I was eating things like fruits and vegetables and I lost, started losing a pound a day. So after about a month, I lost about 30 or 35 pounds and I was feeling like a whole different person. And I was walking down the street and I looked in a window of an ice cream shop and there was a family in there eating a gigantic, um, what do you call them? Banana split where you, bananas and three scoops of different kinds of ice cream and marshmallow and caramel and chocolate, all of this big stuff. And there was four of them eating it, but I got so entranced with that that I went in and got one for myself. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I just murdered that thing. I sat there and, oh, oh, oh. and <laughs> the thing was, there's so much sugar in it that for about 20 minutes, I was walking down the street afterwards and I felt high as a kite, you know, it was just like, <laughs> yeah, life is beautiful, you know? <laughs> and then about 20 minutes later, I got, it was like a gut punch. I got the worst stomach ache I'd ever ha had in my life. And I actually doubled over on the street. It was a crowded street. Mm -hmm. People were walking by and people were saying, are you okay? Are you okay? Because I was, you know, bent over. It was just because I had such a stomach cramp. And that, that went, that just seared itself in my mind that I'd been feeling so good and then I sabotaged myself. And it literally yeah. took me three or four days to get the toxicity of that banana split and all that sugar and ice cream and everything out of my body. But I went back. I got right back on the horse again and, and started my, uh, my diet where I was eating pure food. And it took me about a year. I was more than 100 pounds overweight. And it took me a year to lose 100 pounds or so. Uh, but, you know... It was, it was a hard year, but now I don't regret a minute of it. A minute of it because it taught me a lot of things about life that weren't just about uh, weight. You know, it taught me about mm. just the whole importance of feeling a flow of good energy in, inside you, and the mm. importance of feeling a loving flow of connection with the people around you. Those are the important things in life. All the other stuff is secondary to that. Yeah. I mean, that's such an incredible story as well, because I feel like when we do go through any kind of oftentimes health and fitness journey, it, it does tend to translate to other areas of life. And so you can take those principles, I guess, and use them in, in your other areas as well. I'm, I'm really curious to know, because we, we're talking about this upper limit problem and 
uh, obviously being a psychologist, you've seen lots of clients as well experience this in their own lives. So what are the most sort of notable or memorable examples of this happening in the lives of your clients that you sort of observed? The most common upper limit problem is worry thoughts. Mm. How many times has this happened? You're feeling pretty good. And then all of a sudden you say, oh, but what about next week? I've got all this stuff. And pretty soon you're off on the future and you're out of the present. Same thing. You can have a single thought about the past and suddenly you're five years ago thinking about things. And so worry Mm. thoughts are probably the number one way we bring ourselves back down. So be aware when you're feeling good, be aware of those worry thoughts creeping in because here's my guarantee to you. They almost never have anything to do with reality. Mm, They are always future pacing things that are uncertain or things that we don't know or that we're worried about that will happen, but they very rarely do, right? Very rarely do. Sometimes, you know, Mm. once out of 100. But, you know, people that worry a lot construct all these futures all the time and they're always futures where they don't succeed. You know, they're thinking things in the future that are ways they're going to fail. So we can turn all that around. All we need to do is make a single, simple commitment to bringing forth more and more of your natural genius every day. If you will Mm -hmm. make a heartfelt, sincere commitment to bringing forth more of your genius every day, that changes the whole context of your life. Now your life is a journey to genius. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's not trying to escape from the past. It's it's going towards something in the future. Yeah, and it's almost just broadening out that scope, I suppose, and changing your focus where it's not on the worst case scenario that things might go wrong, rather focusing it on what you're trying to create, right? And yeah. we'll talk a little bit more about the genius stuff, because that's a huge part. But uh, I think, you know, one thing that people probably are wondering is where do these upper limit patterns come from and how do they get there? Because we all have different set points, I suppose. And, we, you know, we, you talk about this in, in, in terms of the thermostat. But where, where do these patterns come from? Is it just from our us being humans and that's just the way that we've been wired in our DNA or how does that come to be? It usually comes to be because of fear, various mm. fears that we have that we pick up growing up. Uh, like, for example, uh, one of the fears I work with all the time, even with very talented people, is what I call the fear of outshining. So that a lot of people are afraid of really letting themselves shine in the world. And they're afraid that it might take away shine from somebody else, or it might steal love from somebody else who needs it more. But it's a kind of a putting down of yourself. It's saying, I don't deserve to really shine and be the star of my own life. So a lot of my work is showing people how to become the star of their own life. Even if they're not on TV or the radio or a podcaster, that kind of stardom, but you can be the star of your life making a really genius soup just as much as you can be a star writing a genius symphony. I want to mention a couple of the other big upper limit uh, problems, Rachel, because um, other yeah. than other than worry thoughts, one of the main ones is getting sick. 
So for example, people will have a big breakthrough and then they'll get sick. And it's a way of punishing yourself. And it comes out of this old belief that I don't deserve good stuff. I don't deserve abundance. I don't deserve the good things of life like love and satisfaction and good times. It's that old limiting belief that I don't deserve the good things. Where do you get a belief like that? Well, somebody taught it to you a long time ago. Either you observed it around you or somebody literally told you that you didn't deserve the good things of life. But all those things are totally false. They're, they're imaginary beliefs that keep us from going all the way to our full portion of our genius. Another big one is um, the, uh, the tendency to have accidents when things are going well. Many people will trip and fall when things aren't going well or, or something that will have an auto accident. A good friend of mine way back got into a big argument with her boyfriend, stormed out of the house, got in the car, and totaled it two blocks later. Oh, wow. Who was driving that car? You know, it was the angry person who was still mad at her boyfriend. You know, that was who was piloting that car. Um, Also, uh, there was one study a long time ago where a lot of auto accidents come within an hour of some kind of emotional upset. And Wow, that's big. Yeah, I saw that (laughs) I was playing golf today. I'm an avid golfer and I play golf a few times a week at the Ojai Valley Inn where I live here in, uh, near where I live in Ojai, California. And I watched a guy that I was playing with. He got angry about something and the next ball he hit, he just blasted it straight into the woods, you know? And I, Mm. and I was saying, you know, who hit that ball? You know, it wasn't his normal self that hit that ball. It was that angry self that uh, he got angry about something that somebody called him and told him on the phone. And I could see he was pissed off about it. And uh, I don't know if that's a word you use down in Australia. You but can. I, yeah, we do. <laughs> we do. Definitely know what that means. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to offend your tender Australian ears down there. <laughs> <laughs> no, we definitely use that word. <laughs> no, I think it's so fascinating that, you know, your, I guess the state that you're in, um, create, it almost like creates these things or um, sicknesses, illnesses, accidents that happen in your life. And we, we, we sort of all ha- have different ways of it manifesting, I suppose. Yes, right? uh, we do. Yeah. And everyone's a little bit different in how we manifest our upper limits. But the thing, just start looking for when you are feeling good and then something happens and you don't feel good anymore. Or Pay attention to the flow of connection with a friend or a beloved or partner and notice what happens when that stops. What happened? What did we do? And start using that flow of good energy as a barometer to show you where you have things that you could do better. Yeah, I think it's it's so, to me, it's just such an a new way of framing things. I've definitely heard about these concepts about, and I know a lot of people have heard about limiting beliefs and how we self-sabotage, but just framing it in a way of it being more of a, a set point where we're allowing ourselves to experience feeling good, I feel like is the ch- game changer on how to 
understand what's going on with us and allowing ourselves to experience um, all of these good things in our life. Um, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is really, the, the problem is if your goal or your intention, which we assume is to experience more good, experience more abundance, experience more love, wealth, all of these things that we want in our life, that when we when we have when we hit this upper limit problem it's the thing that stops us from achieving that outcome obviously and you know there's a you sort of refer to in the book this idea about cognitive dissonance which is basically when you have two opposing thoughts right and so i think this sort of ties into the idea of the conscious and unconscious mind um so can you explain a little bit about how the conscious and unconscious mind work in, in this kind of context where they're sort of opposing each other. Um, I'd yeah. like to hear your thoughts on that, yeah. Well, anytime you start thinking in a new way or you come up with a new positive thought, it's almost a guarantee that you're going to experience some negative crosstalk. Like um. I, it, back when I was in my 30s, I was driving down the road one day and there was a speaker on the radio talking about the importance of having a life purpose. And to this day, I don't know who the speaker was or anything, but uh, because I, I got to my home and I went inside and I was thinking, you know, that's really true. I'm 34 years old and I don't really know what the purpose of my life is. If somebody came up and asked me that, I wouldn't know exactly how to answer it. And so I sat down and I just thought about it for an hour and tuned into it. And I came up with a purpose for my life. It's the one that's in the big, the big leap where it says, I expand every day in love, creativity, success, and abundance as I inspire other people to do the same. So my life purpose has to do with feeling the expansion of love and abundance and good times in my own life. But that's not all my life is about. I get great satisfaction from teaching those things to other people. And without that, I don't think my life would have, have a, as good a feeling about it. So I think it's up to each of us to come up with what the chosen purpose for our lives is. And the interesting thing was, Rachel, as soon as I thought about it, I heard a voice up in my head. As soon as I came up with this idea of, I expand and love creativity and abundance and success every day as I inspire others to do the same. This voice came out of my head and said, you could never make a living doing that. And, yeah. and the voice I realized was my older brother. And he's, wow. he's much more, I would say, negative in the sense that if you went up uh, and handed him a dollar bill, he wouldn't say thank you. He'd hand it back and say no thanks, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't want to get involved. Uh, I'd happily take the dollar <laughs> bill and say thank you. <laughs> um, but um, he runs an air conditioning and heating company. And so this voice I heard was from the president of an air conditioning and heating company telling me I couldn't make a living teaching people how to expand in their genius. So mm. why would I listen to that kind of counsel? You know, and so I realized you have to disqualify a lot of the voices you hear in your head because they're yes. not meant to help you. They're meant to slow you down or maybe keep you safe. But 
You cannot listen to those old limiting voices if you really want to bring forth your true genius. Your true genius is what you most love to do and what makes your biggest contribution to other people. That's your genius. That's the sweet spot of what we are here to do, in my view. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so amazing to even firstly come to that point of recognizing what your purpose was at that time, but also then the discernment, I feel like maybe something that people struggle with, the discernment of those, the different parts of you, that the one that is urging you to step up and level up in your life. And then there's another voice. There's obviously different parts of us within us. And it's about that discernment of really understanding which which do you listen to. And I think one of the things that that I'm curious to know is, um, you know, this is kind of tied into intuition or gut feeling as well, which is also more related to our unconscious, right? So I'm, I'm curious to know, what, how can we tell the difference between us hitting an upper limit problem? So we do want to move forward. We want to take the next step. We want to up level in our lives and we might hit that limit. How do we tell the difference between us hitting that upper limit problem or set point as opposed to our intuition that is maybe telling us that we shouldn't do something or continue down a certain path. How do we know which is which? Does that make sense? Oh, it absolutely makes sense. And Mm. I want to say that that is a very tricky, difficult thing to do, making that discernment. Uh, So I don't Mm. want to sound like it's, I'm saying it's an easy thing. I want to make that really clear because that's the sort of thing that you would want to spend you know, years sharpening that distinction between those two things. But here's how you will know. The feeling of an upper limit almost always comes with a fear that you can feel down in your belly. So first of all, check for the presence of fear, because that will often tell you that it's an upper limit kind of thought coming from your unconscious rather than something you ought to pay attention to. A second way is to check it out with some friends, you know, just kind of talk about it a little bit and find out what they say about it. Um, So ultimately, you have to trust your own intuition, of course, but it's also great to get feedback along the way as you uh, sharpen that. So if you're having an intuition to quit your job and run away to Tibet and rent a cave for several years and work on yourself, kind of check it out with a couple of friends first and say, hey, what do you think about this idea? Yeah, right. Because I think that's one thing that a lot of people do struggle with is just discerning the difference between what is intuition, what is fear, which one should I follow? Um, Because obviously fear is there, like you said, it's there to slow you down and keep you safe. Uh, But where do we know to push through the fear and to push through that limiting Mm -hmm. voice that says, don't do that, it's scary, Um, as opposed to, yeah, just that's not right for you. I think yeah. that's, the, that's the key, isn't it? Mm. Yes. And, and another way also too that's very useful is to not only cultivate the body of wisdom to feel where the fear is and everything, but also mm. remember that fear is excitement without the breath. And so when you're scared, remember, 
Don't hold your breath. Breathe with it. Open up. Feel those sensations pouring through your body. Many people try to stifle their fear, but you yeah. fear is there to be listened to. It's It's got information to it. But where people make wrong decisions oftentimes is by stuffing their feelings and not listening to them. I recommend yeah. being very open-hearted with yourself. You know, be very clear-minded, but also very open-hearted with yourself where you lovingly accept the fears and the sorrows and the sadnesses and the angers that are there in us all. Because the more you can open your heart to that, the better decision maker you'll be because you've unified your head and your heart. I always tell my students that the longest journey they will ever make is 12 inches from their head down to their heart, you know, to really combine those two elements of ourselves. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I so love that you brought that up between the head and the heart, because sometimes our head tells us something different than what our heart tells us. And I think another common uh, thing that people wonder about is when something comes up, what do I listen to? Because obviously your logical mind is there for a reason. It can give you all the reasons to either do something or not do something, move in a certain direction or not. And your heart may tell you something else. What is your take on listening to your heart or your head? Or how do we get them to be in alignment, I guess, if that's what we want? Yes. One thing that we teach here in our seminars is how to recognize a whole body yes and a whole body no. So for example, if your mind is saying yes and your body is saying no, well, that's a great piece of information. I would personally go with what my body says. You know, if somebody was saying, here, take this shot of scotch or something and my body says you know but my mind says well yeah maybe i should maybe they'd think i'm a good guy if i drank their scotch well go with your body and uh, yes. but but ultimately what you want is a harmony of those two things so you can instantly feel a yes in your mind and a yes in your body and a no in your mind and a no in your body and get those two things working together. I say that um, if, you're if you're encountering difficulty, uh, spend more time cultivating feeling, learning how to get more into what's going on in your body. The body has three main feeling zones that we need to pay attention to. The chest zone is all about sadness, and it has its mm -hmm. positive things like love and compassion, but the troublesome feeling is that we often have a hurt or a wound or a sadness and then don't know how to move on through that. So that can stay mm -hmm. stuck in our bodies for literally decades. And you know, I, I worked with a widow one time who her husband, a very prominent guy, and he had died seven years before. And she had not been able to shake the depression of his death for seven years. And, mm. you know, when I asked her, when we talked about it, she said she died seven years ago along with her husband. Now her body was just putting in time. And that made my hair stand on end because, you know, I don't want anybody mm. here to, to not be here, you know, if you're going to yeah. be here on planet Earth, be here with all of yourself. So it took her some work to 
get unfrozen from those sorrows from seven years before. But as she did and learned to be in the present more, boy, she had many more years of life, you know, and, and yeah. to have the mind and the body working together is such a beautiful thing. Yes, absolutely. I think it's so important to really cultivate those skills for ourselves to understand our bo- that body awareness and really understand. I think so many of us, are, you know, we can hear that voice in our mind very clearly. That logical mind is a very loud voice, but the more subtle uh, senses of the body or intuition are things that we probably need to to cultivate more, I think, and it would be beneficial for all of us. Um, now, you just touched on earlier, we, we spoke a little bit about those hidden barriers, um, coming back to this the, these ideas that um, stop you with your um, upper limit problem. And one of them you mentioned was the, the crime of outshining, but there are a couple others, there are a few others that you mentioned in the book, like feeling fundamentally flawed, um, disloyalty and abandonment, and also believing that more success brings a bigger burden. So can we maybe unpack some of these and and kind of talk yes. about what these mean? Yeah. So the upper limit problem happens because you're proceeding along toward a goal. Like for example, um, doing your podcast or writing a book or something like that. And then what happens is you get scared and an old limiting belief comes into the machinery. Like the example of you gave about um, more success means more burden. So a lot of people limit themselves because they're already stressed out and they think if I do more and get more successful, I'll be even more stressed out. But what needs to happen there is you need to let go of that limiting belief and learn to work smarter. Uh, Because if you're feeling stressed out and unwilling to grow because it'll place more burden on you, that tells me that you're not working smart enough. You need to put some more strategies into place so that your work is not stressful and has room to bring your genius into it. A big belief also that I run into a lot is a lot of people limit their growth because they think if I grow and change, it will mess up my relationship at home or with my family or with parents that I'll, I can't, I I can't grow because it would be disloyal to the way they are and the way they live. Mm. And that's kind of a tough one that tugs on the heart because ideally people could grow to their heart's content and it wouldn't disturb other people, but that's not the way it is all the time. You know, like when I used to work with, uh, I taught for many years at a university. I was in the counseling psychology program at University of Colorado. And many times I would have people come to me and say, I think I'm going to have to drop out because of conflicts with my family, you know? And so I always sad to see that sometimes uh, it's other things, but there was, you know, if you're, if you're learning, the skill of being in the helping professions, you're learning how to do some things that are different than you did them before. You know, like when you talk to somebody who's having pain, 
your job is to kind of draw them out, not to shut them up, you know? And a lot of people think the idea if a person is talking about pain or something, your idea is to shut them up or have them think positive or something. But we want Mm -hmm. to draw it out so we can find where people are stuck and what's causing that pain. And Mm. that's why it's so important to keep an eye on the upper limit problem and notice when you sabotage yourself, because it also, the very moments when you sabotage yourself are also the very moments where if you did something different, it would change everything. Like if you use that moment to open up to your genius zone, what you really love to do, that's when you start producing some real magic in your life. Yeah. And I I mean, I think it's so important, I think, to be aware of these barriers. And uh, like you said earlier, a lot of them have been through childhood, something that we might have picked up, something someone, someone said. But to bring that to conscious awareness, I think, is a huge piece to become aware of them firstly, um, because otherwise they're just running under the surface without any knowledge of them. And, and that's how they just continue to, we continue to live that way if they, if they are, um, if we're unaware of them, right? Yes, it's important to, I, I compare it to shine a flashlight on. You know, like mm-hmm. just the act of being aware of something often makes it start to change. But I'll tell you where the real magic is, Rachel, and that is in commitment. Any any kind of self-change starts with heartfelt commitment. And mm-hmm. in, in the Big Leap and in the new book, The Genius Zone, one of the things I really work on is how to make a life-changing commitment. And it's not difficult. It takes a little focus. Like in the, um, in the new book, The Genius Zone, it really takes about an hour of sitting down and working through the processes in the book. But, you know, if you're not willing to spend an hour of investment to make a huge change like that, you're probably not going to make any changes anyway. Mm, yeah. And I mean, I think that's important. It's, it's that decision to take the time to actually put the work in because with any growth, there needs to be an effort from you. It doesn't just sort of happen miraculously overnight. So you're talking about The Genius Zone, which is, of course, your latest book as well. And I, I'm so excited to talk about this because, you know, we're talking about developing your creative muscles and there's different zones that we operate in. Of course, you're talking about The Genius Zones, but there are, you mentioned in the book that there's four different zones. There's a zone of incompetence, zone of competence, a zone of excellence and your zone of genius as well. And so can you sort of explain to everyone listening the differences between these zones and why it is that we actually want to be living and operating from our genius zone? Yes. Well, start from the bottom up, the zone of incompetence. That's when you're doing stuff that you're not any good at and that you don't like to do. So just think for a moment. Hmm. In the last day or two, have I done anything that I don't really like to do and something which uh, uh, that I don't get any satisfaction out of and somebody else could probably do it better? So just think. And as soon as possible, delegate those things. Get out of those things because (laughs) even, even gifted people often waste time in their zone of incompetence. The second zone is the zone of competence, where you're doing things that you're good at, but somebody else could do them just as well. And Mm. again, you want to learn to delegate and get somebody else to do those things. I give the example in the book where um, I found myself one day when I 
realize this. I was standing in line at the post office and there was about maybe 15 people in line. I had a package I wanted to mail and there was one clerk behind the counter to handle all these people. And so we, we were just moving forward at a very slow pace and I was getting more and more irritated. So by the time it got to my turn, I realized I'd spent 15 minutes standing in line with a box that a monkey could have done, you know, or, or, or a, you know, a robot. <laughs> yeah. uh, but here's the thing that really I realized at the time, uh, uh, my office billed my coaching at $1,000 an hour. And I realized what shocked me, I, I just spent $250 to mail a package. Yeah. You know, that I'd spent yep. $250 worth of my precious time in there mm. to mail a package that cost six or $7. To, that's the last time I've ever stood in a post office line, by the way. I, <laughs> I Never again. But find out. <laughs> how you're wasting your precious creative time by doing stuff that you're not any good at. Now, the excellence zone, that's where you're doing really well. You're doing, uh, you're doing things that you're probably better at than most people. Like, uh, uh, so you're daily involved in the practice of helping people change their lives. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if you're doing that, you also have a responsibility to yourself to keep your own instrument tuned. And to me, great coaching comes not just from what you tell the person, but what you radiate. How, yes. you know, the, the thing that can't even be named that you bring to the situation. That's really, I think, what changes people's lives is they get a direct hit of your life force or my life force mm. and the way we are not limiting it. And that communicates directly the person in addition to the kinds of things you say with words. Yes. Yeah. It's almost like the, the energy, the presence that you bring to the work that you do. And in that, in any scenario, I feel like it's, you want to lead by example, right? And it, and it comes out in, in, all the activities that you do in your life. Yeah, like I sit down next to somebody on an airplane and I don't tell them what I do, but I, I guarantee within a half an hour, they're telling me all about their life. Uh, yeah. And there's surprise later. They say, what do you do, by the way? And I say, I'm a psychologist. You know, and <laughs> I, I write books and they don't realize that. And I didn't tell them yeah. that, but there's a vibe I put out after 50 years of doing this that just makes people want to talk about themselves. And that's what you want to really begin to cultivate is that the type of healing presence that communicates to people that there are possibilities in life. There mm. are possibilities here. And work on your mindset so that you can communicate that to people without even saying a word. Yeah, bring it through your energy and through your vibe. So then we then we come on to the the zone the zone of genius, which your latest book is also all about. But you mentioned this um, in the Big Leap. So talk about the the zone of genius. What is the zone of genius exactly? How do people actually get into their zone of genius? Yes, your genius zone is when you're doing what you most love to do, and you're doing something that also contributes to other people. 
I think that true genius co contributes to other people. It's not some lone loony out in the woods, you know, just making formulas or something. The real, the real genius in the world makes the world a better place. And so I think we need to keep our eye on, are we doing something in every moment that makes a contribution not only to ourselves, but to the world around us? I believe very strongly that that is what makes human beings feel happiest, is when they're not only contributing to their own happiness, but they're also making a direct contribution to other people's lives as well. Those are the folks that I see being the most happy citizens of planet Earth, where they're using their full capabilities to make a difference in the world. I salute that and I appreciate that. And that's what my life is dedicated to. And I've truly not had a dull moment or even an unhappy moment in so long, I can't even remember what it feels like. Because for the last 30 or 40 years, I've focused pretty much exclusively on doing things that I love to do and that make a contribution to other people. I just don't do anything else anymore. And uh, there was a time when I did, but I gradually just started increasing my genius zone so much that it was pretty much then all the time, all my time. So I, when I first started thinking about all this with the genius zone, I was only spending about 10% of my own time every day in my genius zone. And I started bumping wow. that up. I, I set a goal of bumping it up to 30. So three hours out of a nine hour day, I'm going to spend in my genius zone. After a while, I got there and I wanted to bump it up to 50%. And after a while, I wanted to bump it up to 70%. By the end of the 90s, I was spending pretty much 100% of my time doing only what I most love to do, spending all my time in my genius zone. So this century, I haven't spent a minute not in my genius zone. And it feels great, you know, because every day That's I've got so tons of projects to work on. And even though I've been, you know, doing all this for 50 years, I'm just as excited or maybe even more so than I was when I first started doing it. So amazing. And it's so it's so evident as well, like you're saying, it comes with the vibe. You know when somebody is in that state of being in their zone of genius because they love what they're doing and, and people can can feel that. And I love that. So it's it's a combination of doing what you really truly love to do, what your your unique skills and talents lend themselves to and to make a contribution, to be of service to other people. I really, really love that. And I so appreciate all of your work. The, this other little concept that I want to touch on is so fascinating to me, this, this idea of Einstein time. And you sort of um, refer to it as being this new kind of time management system that reorganizes your conception of time. And, and as you describe it, it, it sort of comes back to you, you can actually get more done in less time and you have plenty of time and energy to do your most important creative activities. So, um, my, I mean, my perception of it and my gathering of it is, is it's really just a shifting of our perception of time and our relationship with time because we experience it, you know, in a variety of different ways. So can you, can you speak a little bit about this? Yes. Um, I call it Einstein time because it's, uh, there's a particular story of Einstein's that I tell in the book that um, he was asked to explain the theory of relativity to some 14-year-olds, I think, or junior high students or whatever. And he said, it works like this. A minute sitting on a hot stove 
goes by like an hour. But an hour with your boyfriend or girlfriend goes by like a minute. Why is that? Well, I explain it this way. If you're sitting on a hot stove, the reason time goes by very slowly is because you're contracted against the experience you're having. You're trying to get away from the experience you're having. And when you're in that state of contraction, time slows down. And Mm. on the other hand, if you're embracing your beloved, all the cells of your body are wide open. You want to be in this moment. You want very much to be in this moment. And so that's when you're in that expanded space, time disappears and you look up and you say, oh my God, an hour has gone by. And I just had that, I get lost in my writing sometimes. I write every morning to five from 5 a.m. till 8 a.m. That's when I get a lot of my books written. I'm an early riser. My wife likes to sleep in till 7.30 or 8. So I have a few hours where it's just me and the cats and very quiet. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so uh, this morning, I was so into what I was writing that I didn't even hear my wife come in. And suddenly I realized, oh my gosh, it's a quarter of eight. You know, and Mm. so... That's how you know you're in your genius zone is you you slip out of time. So yeah. Einstein time, there's one big move that you have to make to get into Einstein time. And that is you have to realize that you are where time comes from. Time does not occur out there. Time occurs in here. And mm. sure, there's a clock across the room there that I can see. That's one type of TikTok time. But um, in real life, time is only a factor when it influences something you are doing. So, for example, if if you're with your beloved, but your mind is busy someplace else, that causes that kind of slippage where time becomes unfriendly to you. And... So the number one move you have to make is to own time. I'm where time comes from. I make up the amount of time I need to do the things I most love to do. That's you being in charge of time. What prevents that, and what I want you to pay keen attention to, is listen to how people in the world go around talking about time. And see if you do this too. They speak of time as something that there's a scarcity of. People will say, oh, I'm sorry, I'd love to talk to you, but I got to run. Or, um, oh, gee, I have to be at the dentist at four o'clock. Excuse me. You know, uh, so there's always this perception of scarcity and it comes with fear. So the, the key move is to own that fear And own that part of your mind is going to be trying to escape from this present moment, but to actually own time so that you know that you're where it comes from. That if you want to make up an extra 10 minutes a day to work on your poetry, you have total goodwill behind that. You have total control of it. But if you use Mm -hmm. the thought, oh, I have to work. I don't have time to write my poetry for 10 minutes. That's just a... 
you know, just BS. I don't know if you have that term down there, but... Uh, we do. <laughs> <laughs> we have all the curse words down See, here. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm learning a lot about Australian curse words today. <laughs> I, I, I really like this idea because it is really shifting out of almost being a victim to time as That's time it. is happening to us, right? And instead taking ownership and I think one of the examples you give in the book is even, I don't have time to do that right now. But what we're really saying when we say, I don't have time is, I don't want Want to to do do that. That's right. Right now. And so, you know, and that could be a variety of different reasons why we don't want to say that, you know, to somebody, maybe we don't want to hurt their feelings, but that actually is the the real reason. It's not that we don't have time, it's we don't want to do that right now. That's right. And I think that's a big distinction there. Yeah, it took me about... 10 years to figure that out. So, uh, you know, to get myself really organized around time. It won't take you guys that long because there's a chapter in the book that shows you how to do it. Yeah, you got to read the book. We'll pop all the links up so you can make sure you grab that too, guys. So one thing that I do like to talk to all my guests about, which is um, it's about rejection and failure because I know we all experience these things in our lives. And um, I'm really curious to know, what your biggest or most notable rejection or failure has been and what did you learn from it? Uh, rejection or failure, yes. Um, well, I remember one big one when I was in college where I got dumped by my girlfriend and it made such a huge impression on me because all the things she told me she was leaving me because of I realized they were all true. You know, like one thing she said was, you never ever talk about your own feelings about anything. She said, mm-hmm. you, you know, you'll listen to my feelings, but I like to hear you sometimes talk about things you're mad about or scared about or sad about. So like, you know, and God bless her. You know, she was only 20 years old, but she nailed it for me, you know, and I was very resentful and hurt and defensive about that, you know, but it was absolutely true once I realized Mm. it. And that put me, it was so powerful because I think that's ultimately how I ended up in that counseling class and why it Mm. felt so good. Because I realized, you know, a couple of years later after she told me that that she was so right. And I had this big set of emotional wounds that I needed to clear up in my life. And so it took me years to do that, but I'm totally grateful. And if you're out there in the internet somewhere, Alice Hilbert, thank you very much. I appreciate it. My my 20-year-old self, I've grown a lot since then. That's so amazing. I love that story. It's so cool to hear when something that comes out as a rejection actually leads you down a certain path. Exactly. Well, I think that's the ideal in a way too, if you get hit by something like that is eventually you kind of open your heart to it and say, okay, what can I learn from this rather than I don't deserve this or like that. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. And my final question for you is if you had an overarching life philosophy to which you try to live your life by, what would that be? Feel all my feelings tell all the truth, and love as much as I can wherever I am. I love that. It's so good. How did you come to learn to have that as your life philosophy? By making about a thousand mistakes with all of those things. (laughs) 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 
I wish I, I like wish that. I'd been born enlightened, but I, I uh, had to, you know, I always say now that life teaches us by tickling us with a feather if we're paying attention or by whacking us with a sledgehammer if we're being thick and obtuse. And I had to go through many, many, many sledgehammer whacks <laughs> before I eventually learned to tickle myself with a feather to learn. I like that. I like that so much. I think we all are learning as we go along this journey that we call life and and learning to be better and grow as humans. So thank you so much for being on the show, um, Gay. I'm so grateful to be able to have this conversation with you. Where can people find you and all your amazing work? Well, the main place uh, is Hendrix.com, H-E-N-D-R. I-C-K-S, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. And that's kind of the jumping off place. I think we have 11 different websites and things like that, but you can find everything there at uh, Hendrix.com. And my wife and I, um, we just celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary, by the way. And uh, Congratulations. Well, thank you. Amazing. Thank you. thank you. Yes. Looking forward to 40 more. And um, I, uh, I mentioned that because we've been working together now for pretty much the whole time we've been together. A lot of our books are co-authored together. So mm-hmm. anything I talk about, I'm also talking about the work that Katie contributed to. Yeah, it's so it's so amazing to see. Gay has a, an incredible body of work along with his wife. And there's all the books and, and all the courses and teachings and things like that on the website. So we'll make sure we throw that up in the show notes. Um, I know you are on Instagram as well. So we'll throw that handle up too. It's at hendrix.gay. So thank you again so much, Gay, for being on the show. And thank you guys for listening. Make sure you tell us what you loved and learnt from this episode and leave a review over at Apple Podcasts. Also screenshot this and tag us and share it to your socials and we'll catch you next time on the Rach Active Podcast. Mm-hmm.